views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Dashaun Farad. Let's boo. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Let's Build. I'm Dashaun Farad. Uh, tonight uh, is a very special show, as every show is a very special show. Uh, as is the case most Monday nights, uh, this show is divided into two segments. On our first segment, we'll be speaking to, we'll be speaking tonight. Pardon me, I don't know what that's from. On our first segment, we'll be speaking tonight with the founder and owner of the Black Talk Radio Network, as well as uh, the engineers of our shows, the chief engineers of our shows, uh, Brother Scotty Reed. And then later, we'll be speaking with uh, activist Miss Ramona Africa concerning this week's upcoming 30th anniversary of the MOVE bombing by Philadelphia police. Uh, she'll be joining us the second half, which will be at 1030. She'll be discussing with us, of course, uh, among other things, uh, Freddie Gray's case, uh, police brutality and police repression, as well as the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal, who is also a member of the MOVE organization. And when Mumia was first arrested uh, and convicted of the killing of Officer Philadelphia Police Officer Daniel Faulkner, he was actually, uh, you know, he's a journalist, and he was doing stories on police harassment of the MOVE organization. Although he had been a member of the Black Panther Party as a teenager, beginning at age 14 or 15, he had later joined the MOVE organization. Uh, but in the meantime, on this first segment, we have with us Scotty Reed. We're going to be discussing tonight, uh, of course, Freddie Gray's case, as well as police brutality mainly. But we're asking the question tonight that why is it that after all of these centuries, with so many leaders and so many organizations that the African-American community has been blessed with, why is our community still catching hell? Why are we still marching for equality? Why are we still marching, demanding uh, freedom, justice, and equality? Why are we still demanding to be allowed into certain institutions? Why are we still demanding to, uh, to keep or get the full right to vote? Uh, Brother Scotty, welcome as always. How are you tonight? I'm not going to complain too much, Brother Doshan, because um, like I've always been told by my parents, is somebody's always doing worse off than you, so don't complain too much. And so, you know, I'm uh, just excited to join you tonight. If I may offer one correction, um, I'm not the owner of the Black Talk Radio Network. I created it, but it's okay. actually managed by the nonprofit North Carolina-based Black Talk Media Project. And so if it has an owner, I would say it's the people throughout the years who have supported the network financially and uh, and spiritually. So I listen, just wanted Scott, to offer that. Listen, Scott, and we appreciate the correction. Thank you very much. Well, listen, folks. Uh, you can, if you want to join our discussion in, uh, later on, or in the next several minutes, actually later on, you can call us, uh, in case you're not on the screen, uh, you can call us at area code 
775-7035. The access code is 919-339-POUND. You hit star and one to comment on air. Once again, that number is 712-775-7035. Of course, dial the one first. More than likely, access code is 919-339-POUND. Hit star, excuse me, hit six and one to comment on air. Well, Scotty, uh, you know, I want to get your honest opinion there, brother. You know, you've been around for quite some time. Uh, you're an activist, brother. Uh, you, you've been doing this uh, for a little while now. Uh, what are your thoughts concerning African Americans still having to demand equality in a country that is supposed to be so racially diverse and so free as we often pride ourselves as? What's your take on that? Well, my take is the reality paints a totally opposite picture that we are not free. Um, anytime a segment of a population has to, like you mentioned earlier, has to march for equal treatment under the law, have to march to point out systemic racism and, and abuse, I mean, that just really tells you, you know, uh, what the reality is for people in this country. Let's not forget, this country was founded by white men, all right, white men, um, and what did those white men do? Well, they practiced slavery, they practiced uh, genocide, and they practiced land theft. And many would say all of those things still go on to this day. So, I mean, it's just Probably shameful. Man. It's just shameful, Brother Doshan, that after, what, two centuries, we still got to do this? Yes, sir. It's very unfortunate. Just to let you know, Scott, for a few seconds you have went blank. Uh, we had that problem last week, and we think it's coming from the, uh, from your end. Uh, but anyway, I heard part of what you had said. You said that we're still going through this after, say, two centuries, and you said America being founded by uh, white men. So you're saying that this has been problematic, the founding of uh, – now, why is that so significant, uh, it being founded by white men? What is so significant about that? Because it wasn't founded to benefit anyone but those white men, and when I say white men, I'm not talking about all white people, but I'm talking about the aristocracy, you know, the the wealthy landowners, and that's what this country was founded on, uh, to establish a nation, you know, solely for the benefit of white males, land-owning males. Well, you know, uh, it's, it's funny that you said that. Uh, on In 2008, election night 2008, when uh, Barack Obama had ascended to the White House, of course, the first time, I, rem- I was just a few miles away from Ferguson. I was in University City, the home of uh, Raffinelli. Uh, and I can remember people were blowing their horns, and I can remember seeing black folk, well, Americans, period, but specifically us. A lot of black folks were literally jumping up and down, partying. I saw some of us crying, some were on TV crying. Mm-hmm. And one brother came up to me, he said, uh, and, and you heard this all throughout the night, we finally did it. We made it. We made it. I wasn't among those who was celebrating uh, because of the fact that I knew that President Obama, you know, you speak about how this country was founded. I knew that President Obama would not be able to reform a system that was well established 300 years before he was born. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I wasn't looking for President Obama to be the great black savior. And the funny thing is, President Obama never claimed that he was, but it seems no. that even to this day, as he's getting ready to leave office uh, in uh, a little over a year, actually less than a year, we still insist on making him that, whether he wants to be that or not. 
are, you know, that's I, my concern. I, I mean, I understand that people got caught up in the emotions that night. Brother Doshan, you know, he's the first president that we've had of this corporation that looks like us as non-white people, as black people. So I certainly understand the uh people just just speaking off a of raw emotion that night. And then you also have to take into fact that you had a lot of new voters. He, you know, if, if anything, the great accomplishment of the, um, President Obama's campaigns is he's registered a whole lot of young folks, got registered just to vote for him. And so, you know, this is probably their first, first foray into the uh people activity called politics and so you know they just really don't understand how the system works and, and so that's what i attribute those kind of comments to just being naive you know and that's not to say anything bad about them it's just simply to say that they are naive about the system and how it works and you you were right to point out that he never said, you know, he, he made a point of saying that he's not the president of black America. He's the president of America. He didn't come in promising, you know, during his campaigns to address any issues specific to black people. He spoke in very general terms. And I would have to say, except for where he was forced to address racial issues, uh, especially with his friend, uh, uh, Professor, uh, Gates, um, you know, yeah. and then the beer summit after that, you know, when the Professor Gates was racially profiled, accosted uh, in his own house. And so President, that was kind of forced on the President Obama. And, you know, the media has oftentimes, like, for example, Trayvon Martin, where they'll just out of the blue ask a question like that. And, you know, we heard his comments about if I had a son, he would look like Trayvon. But he has not really been a president that's been really outspoken spoken um on uh issues relevant to black people in my opinion well you're not the only one to argue that actually with um you know with Tavis smiley and cornell west uh were asserting say three years ago during his first term but also dr michael Edwards dyson was saying that as well but uh you know it's funny uh concerning president obama it seems that within the black community among the activist circle there seems to be a, uh, how can I put it? There's like a mix, there's like mixed feelings that many, uh, black activists have towards the president. One minute you're saying that, you, you know, one minute you're saying that he's the victim of racism because of, uh, many of the racial remarks that he's received in mm-hmm. terms of, uh, his racial identity, calling him a witch doctor, calling his wife a monkey. Right. Et cetera, et cetera. But then you hear many black activists at the same time, criticizing him, saying that there's another element of black activists that will say, well, he's the black, you know, who agree with Cornel West, that he's the black face of, of Wall Street, or some have said the black face of white supremacy. So it's mm-hmm. like a, it's almost like a, uh, like I said, it's like a, we have mixed feel. The activists have mixed feelings towards President Obama. I think, I think, brother Doshan, that you can feel both of those things and 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 be correct in in those assessments. I mean, I met people. I met people, brother, who are both too. By the way, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, there is no doubt the racial 
uh, animus that has been shown towards the first black, you know, family. There, I mean, there's no doubt um, about the racist hostility that he faces, you know, from the Republican Party, from the Tea Party, from, you know, grassroots conservatives, from talking heads. I mean, just uh, uh, su- our sister, Michelle Obama, First Lady Michelle Obama, just gave a speech at a college that's, on that's the racist... What? Right at Tuskegee. Yeah, at Tuskegee, and, and and so I mean, there is no denying that mo- much of the uh, animus towards the president is racist in nature. But then at the same time, as an activist, like, this is something I've often said, brother Doshan. I don't know if you've ever heard me say this, but when I talk about politicians, when I talk about congressmen. Uh, senators, when I talk about, you know, presidents, attorney generals, I don't see, that's the only time I don't see color. Now I know we hear that a lot from conservatives and stuff, oh I don't see color and, and all this, but I really mean that when I'm talking about politicians and officials working for government. I do not see them as black people. I don't see them as Hispanic people. I don't see them as white people. I see them as representatives of the United States of America or representatives of the North Carolina government, you know, wherever state they may be. So I think it's possible, you know, that you can take both views and be correct. Uh, hey, Scotty, just to, uh, you know what, and absolutely right. I've met people, like I said, that have both views. Uh, so you actually raised a very good point. Uh, you know, you saying that, but, you know, my concern is, you know, the point is, you know, I've never seen him, just to reiterate the point, I've never seen him as the savior. Mm-hmm. Uh, the savior of black America. And it's sad how, you know, many black folk will actually get upset with you when you say that. You know, when I was covering the March for Justice, uh, Remember, it was a it was a brother who said something that was very unhealthy that I didn't like. I had a you know we were disagreeing, and I I pointed out the fact that in Black America, you can't even respectfully say that you disagree with President Obama. You understand what I'm coming from? You can't even say, look, I'm not talking about uh, calling him a uh, referring to him as as Cornel West did as the black mascot of Wall Street, but you can't even respectfully say. Uh, you know, look, uh, I disagree with President Obama signing this bill, this, that, and the third. And the mm-hmm. brother, he, had, you know, he jumped on my case, and he had, he told me, he said that he unequivocally 100% supports President Obama, and I think that's unhealthy. How do you unequivocally support any human being, okay? And, you know, I said, brother, that's, in my job, that's not healthy. Especially a politician, uh, Brother Doshan. Um, <laughs> we, again... We want to play racial politics. Not we, but some of us want to play racial politics. A lot of that is because people are, are new or they're casual observers of politics and they don't really research or become feel familiar with these policy issues. And so how can you say that about a person um, who is the head of, of this country and all the different legislation, all the different bills, all the different foreign policy stances, you know, so you mean to tell me then, you know, those people supported him um, signing into le- the special legislation to rearm the Israelis so they could continue to kill Palestinians in Gaza last summer, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, that's a that's a really um, ignorant statement is the best way I can put it. I don't agree with. I've never met a politician that I looked at the issues and where they stood on the issues and found myself in one hundred percent agreement with that politician. 
Now, speaking of uh, speaking of politicians, uh, you know, right now, you remember last week we interviewed Senator Catherine Pugh, State Senator Maryland State Senator Catherine Pugh, concerning the Freddie Gray case, and that's still a hot topic now. Uh, right now, they're introducing, you know, according to Roland Martin, Roland Martin have have reported that across the country, seventeen Republican governors have said that they would. Uh, that they would propose legislation that would deal with police brutality more than Democrats now. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to know uh, the reason why I was mentioning that the other day I spoke with I spoke with a, a police officer, African American police officer who works for the prosecutor's office. He's actually a sergeant. Okay, we were speaking about the six officers who were indicted. Okay, now what I want to know is concerning that he said that he doesn't think that they're going to get a murder conviction he said they're going to get him with something but he doesn't think that that driver is going to get a murder conviction how do you feel about the six officers involved and do you feel uh scotty that politicians such as senator Catherine Pugh are doing enough to counter this and of course the mayor of baltimore um no i don't um I'm kind of confused about the question um you yeah, asked me how do I feel about the six officers no, what I'm asking you is, what are your thoughts, I should say, concerning the case? Like, in other words, I, I'm sorry, let me be clear. Are you confident at these six officers being charged? And uh, what I was asking you, in other words, do you think that, I should say, do you think that justice will be served in this case, but also do you feel that politicians are doing enough in regards to police brutality? Um, two t- questions, I'm sorry. Okay, the second question, No. They are not doing enough. And actually I was, um, you know, the, uh, UN Human Rights Committee is meeting right now and they've been discussing the issue of police brutality and, and, you know, uh, that was the issue being raised. Are, is America, is the United States doing enough to address, uh, police brutality and live up to, you know, the treaties that it has signed? And, and the simple answer is no. Um, a lot of these politicians, they're afraid to take on these police unions, which have a lot of power. OK. And and, you know, but thinking back to what one of the Justice Department representatives said to the U.N. committee today, he said that, you know, in the past six years that over 600 officers have been charged or over 400 officers. I forget the, uh, the, the, uh, exact number. But the thing is, is though, did you get convictions? No, you did not get convictions. And so anytime in the answer to the first part, how confident am I? If, it, you know, I think the charges are appropriate. I often, I know that prosecutors oftentimes will overcharge people to get them to plead, to plead down to lesser charges. So I know the game that's being played by the prosecutor with these defendants. And I, and I think, you know, she's doing her job. Now, in terms of whether or not we'll see uh, any convictions, it's always a crapshoot, brother, whenever, you know, um, these cases go to court. And I think we've seen enough high-profile cases like the George Zimmerman, you know, uh, case for the murder of Trayvon Martin. And, and we've seen what happened down there with Michael Brown. And I know every situation isn't all, all these cases aren't the same, but the thing is the same, that is the same is that, you know, we often end up with the short end of the stick when it comes to justice in these courtrooms. So, I mean, your guess is as good as mine, bro. 
Now, for those of you, you know, you mentioned George Zimmerman. You know he was involved in a shooting incident mm-hmm. earlier in Florida. He's involved. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back after this brief commercial break. You're listening to Let's Build with Dashaun Parad. Stay with us. To the Black Talk Radio Network for live programming schedules, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Welcome back to Let's Build. I'm Dashaun Farah. We have with us uh, the creator of the Black Talk Radio Network, of which I'm privileged to broadcast from, Scotty Reed. We are discussing, uh, we're actually asking the question, why are African Americans still catching hell after all this time? after all these centuries of us marching, us having rallies, us having leaders and organizations. Yes, Scott, you were making a point. Uh, please remind me. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. We were, you know, you were talking, I'm sorry, actually you finished your point saying that you want, you saying that it was a crap shot concerning yeah, crap shoot. the officer's charge in Freddie Gray's death, which, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which was actually a good thing. What I wanted to ask from you, uh, actually what I wanted to, as I was saying before we went to a commercial, George Zimmerman today was involved in a police shooting, not a police shooting, excuse me, he was involved in a shooting. They're saying that the case centered around, the shooting centered around road rage in mm-hmm. Florida. Uh, details are still coming in. Uh, CNN was reporting this today on Anderson Cooper. He was reporting it. Uh, I wanted to mention, uh, Scotty, now, one of the things that gets me, and I've always said this, for quite some time, especially since the election of President Obama. I think that people, those of us who did not experience uh, segregation, those of us who did not experience Jim Crow or overt racism, I think, you know, you were mentioning something earlier about naiveness. Mm-hmm. I think that I've always said that integration, good jobs, and white spouses, and now a black president has made us very lazy. And I once heard Minister Louis Farrakhan say, he said to younger African Americans, you don't know racism the way your grandparents did. And I'm noticing that every time something like uh, say when one of us is shot down by the police or say for example if if a, uh, if a white person makes a, a racist statement, a lot of black folks get up in arms. Like let me give an example, the Donald Sterling situation. I wasn't upset with him for what he said to his lady in a private conversation and I didn't think that he should be fired what I said when that happened I said that Donald Sterling was expressing the attitudes that many whites have towards black people Mm -hmm. and I said I don't think he should be fired so what I'm noticing is that we seem to be very naive black folk in my judgment have what's referred to as amnesia. okay we seem to think that everything is alright but if you notice every time something like a Donald Sterling situation happens, or like Dog the Bounty Hunter, uh, when some white person refers to refers to us as a nigger or says something that's racial, or us getting beat down by police officers, black folk get so appalled, you know. And 
my thing is if you don't know what you're dealing with after all this time, I have nothing to say to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, again, you know, Malcolm X said that only a fool would allow his enemy to educate his children. And that's the problem with, you know, starting with my generation. I was born in 1966. Integration started in the 50s. Um, I didn't get bused to uh, all white school till I was about maybe in the fourth or fifth grade, somewhere around then. And so that generation right there, the ones like my older cousin, uh, right, you know, a little, about five years older than me, uh, starting with his generation, we are the first generation to be educated, you know, in an integrated system, being taught a white supremacist uh, world view. And so, you know, all the things you mentioned that, you know, now we don't have the no Negroes allowed signs up and, and things like that. And we got a black president and we got all these celebrities dating white women that, you know, people think that they that black people have it better than they've ever had it but like many people have been pointing out brother doshan you got right now more black men well let's just say because i don't want to forget the sisters who are increasingly becoming a target of the uh prison slavery industry in this country but today you have more black people under uh control of this system than what you had in the 1850s on plantations and that's a problem and and it's just not so much blatantly in your face right now the systemic racism but you know if, if they can distract you with shows like empire or scandal and stuff like that and that's all you're putting into your brain then of course you're going to be unaware of you know the age old problem uh that we face in this country as a people no, that's my point exactly. My point exactly. Like I said, you know, me going to these uh, different professional events that are oftentimes attended by uh, many of the, some might say the black elite, some might say the black bourgeoisie, mm-hmm. uh, it actually frustrates me because of the, I listen to the conversations of some of our, quote, educated, uh, well-to-do brothers and sisters and uh, the younger ones, uh, the ones that are post uh, segregation. I listen to their conversations, and some of the conversations is very, just very sickening. You know, a lot of us think that we've actually made it. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, you're making fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars. You made it, and you're looking down on your poor brothers and sisters. Right. This is not every. This is not. This is not every uh, so-called educated, uh, well-to-do black person. I'm not describing that, but you know what I'm talking about. The right. element is the, the number of black folks like that is significant. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, Michael Levitt Dyson, he spoke about that in his book. Is Bill Cosby right, or has the black middle class lost his mind? Speaking about many educated black folk, rich black folk, who have turned their back on the suffering of the masses of their community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, and they will say, "Well, you know, I've made it. You know, I'm. Uh, you know, racism is a thing of the past." But then, as soon as they get beat up by an officer for driving in a nice vehicle, they want to start claiming racism. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So. Um... I mean, it's just a sad fact, and I, I I point that to being Americanized because I mean, what does capitalism teach us in this country? What are what are we taught from birth that you know, if you just work hard, if you study hard, if you you know, you can become successful and nothing can hold you back. And so the assumption is is that if you do those things and you do make it, then your assumption is. Well, you, you're still poor because you didn't work as hard as me or you didn't do this or you didn't do that. And you know, that's just not the re, everybody can't make it. 
everybody can't be multi-millionaires. You know what I'm saying? And so, I mean, the true measure of, of a person, I feel like, is how much do they care about others? You know what I'm right. saying? It's not right. a... It, it, yes. Go ahead, go ahead, Scott. Go I'm ahead. just saying, it's not enough for me just to be worried about me and worried about my family because I was raised you know, by, by my mother to care about other people and to care about us as people as a whole. And so I, I just don't, you know, I, I chalk that up to people just buying into the system. Well, uh, you know, and, you know, you said everyone can't be a millionaire. Some people don't want to be millionaires. That's and there's true. nothing wrong. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's, it's amazing to me how, you know, E. Franklin Frazier, he, he spoke about, uh, once again, his book, The Black Bourgeoisie, in 1962, he was speaking about uh, that attitude, the, the attitude that many uh, well-to-do black folk have towards others. You know, he spoke about that, you know, not caring, uh, you know, being, you know, being, having money, but, you know, looking down on your poor brother and sister. But it's funny, I heard Reverend Al Sharpton say that the whole racial profiling situation came to light, he said, because of the fact that bougie Negroes were being pulled over in their, you know, in their nice cars by white officers, and that's how it became an issue. Do you, you know? buy into that? Well, no, actually, I'm be honest with you. He has a point there, brother. What he was saying was that, keep in mind, uh, remember, Scotty, for like 20 years, you actually had cases of professional, you know, you know how people always say, well, if black people were to pull their pants up and speak proper English, they, run, they won't be harassed by the police. Mm-hmm. But you see that you actually have black folk who do speak, quote, proper English in dress in suits and business attire mm-hmm. that are still getting beat down. Okay, so that's what I think that's what I think Reverend Sharpton was trying to explain that black folk were catching hell regardless. Um I mean in terms of why it is an issue now, yes. I don't I don't attribute that to, you know, upper middle class black people or the bourgeoisie or anything. I attribute it to the Ferguson Rebellion. I mean, it's always been an issue in our community, and it just depends on what network, what television network, what radio network, what you're tuned in to, or whether or not you're getting information about what's going on around you. And so, but we saw with the Ferguson Rebellion right there, that was grassroots people rising up against the system and saying, you know what, this is the last straw. You know, we're tired of you mistreating us, tired of you abusing us, and we're not going to take it anymore. And so I attribute it to the grassroots people in the street. Oh, no, I'm not saying that he was saying uh, that 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 right there was attributed to that. No, this is what he said this statement before Ferguson. Oh, really? He was talking, this was, this, this was going to the this Oh, I'm sorry. We getting ready to go into our second segment. It looks like yes, we uh, do have Sister Ramona on the line. Right, Sister Ramona, please stand by. We're going to go to this brief commercial. We'll be right back in a few seconds. Ramona, Africa, okay. ladies and gentlemen, after this next commercial break. Okay. Thank you, Brother Scotty. You're welcome.
burst of time for an awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. Welcome back to Let's Build. I'm Dashaun Farad. In our last segment that we were joined by Scotty Reed, who's still online. He's our creator, creator of the Black Talk Radio Network, as well as an engineer. On May 13, 1985, uh, the Philadelphia Police Department carried out one of the most horrific uh, slaughters in American history. Uh, the MOVE organization was an activist organization. It was a, uh, it was a peaceful organization, anti-war organization, uh, that had been targeted by the city's uh, local government. On May 13, 1985, as a result of the Philadelphia police bombing by the orders of Black Mayor Wilson Good. Uh, Brother Doshan, I think we actually uh, lost you there, but I'm showing you're still online. Sister Ramona, do we still have you on? Okay, um, y'all bear with us. We just lost everything. Uh, the communication system went down, so we're going to... Uh, go ahead and get everybody back I do apologize uh, for that and stay tuned we will be right back as I try to uh, get them back on brother Doshan the communication system just went down but we have everybody back apologies for that okay listen we're very sorry about that ladies and gentlemen thank you very Scotty okay here to discuss the upcoming 30th anniversary of uh, the observance of the moon bombing we have a woman who was actually there uh, she was, uh, she'll tell you what happened on Osage Avenue on that fateful day, May 13, 1985. Uh, the way the bombing case, I don't know how soon it was before we went off air. Uh, Philadelphia police had bombed the MOVE organization headquarters on Osage Avenue, and uh, it was carried out by a black mayor by the name of Mayor Wilson Good. Here to discuss that is Sister Ramona Africa, well-known activist. Sister Ramona, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, invite your listening audience to come out and join us on Wednesday, May 13th. We don't ever intend to let the bombing and murder of our family be forgotten or, you know, people act like it never happened or like it was right that it happened or we deserve that. We keep information out in the minds of the public to make it clear to them what really was going on in May of 1985. You know, the government used or misused the media to try to convince people that what happened that day, the bombing, happened because neighbors complained about us. That is as idiotic as you can get because anybody with half a brain cell understands clearly that this government never ever cared about black people complaining about anything, let alone complaining about their neighbors, I mean, police. Um, we have been complaining since being in this country. You know, do they care about that? Black people being choked or shot down in the street, beat to death, having their spines broke, 
You know, they don't care about that. But they want you to believe that a handful of black folks complained about their neighbor and got the local, state, and federal government to come together and conspire to drop a bomb on a family in a row house in an urban area and not only burn babies alive and adults alive, but burn down the whole community. All because a handful of black folks had complaints about their neighbors. Come on. I mean, that is absolutely ridiculous. Now, Sister Ramona, of course, uh, and I'm getting ready to ask you about the experiences of that day. Uh, many of the news reports have described Ocean Avenue that day as looking like uh, it has literally been hit by a nuclear blast. That yeah. uh, the, if it, now it's true. Is it true that Ocean Avenue had virtually been leveled? Absolutely, absolutely. The whole uh, like three block radius had to be completely rebuilt. And in rebuilding, such shot work was done. The the Osage residents had to deal with sinking foundations, leaking roofs, electrical problems. We tried to tell those people that the government didn't care any more about them than they did about MOVE, but they didn't believe it. They thought that government officials and the police and everybody was their friends. But uh, we had uh, several Osage residents as part of our commemoration program on Wednesday, and they thought that MOVE was the bane of their existence, was their problem. But for the past 30 years, they have found out who the real problem is because they have suffered. They have been, uh, I mean, you can't even describe how the city government here in Philadelphia has treated those Osage residents. And they are part of the program, and they're going to tell people about what's really going on and who the real enemy is. Now, if you would briefly, uh, please describe for us what was going through your mind that day, May 13, 1985, as it was happening. Well, the first thing that people should know is that the police amassed uh, on our block, in our neighborhood, on Sunday, May 12th, Mother's Day and started setting up their weaponry of war because their aim was to kill, not to arrest. And we knew that. That was very clear because we walked the streets, we went over to the park, took our kids over to the park, walked from one move house to another, went food shopping at the same two places twice a week, every week, buying food in bulk, and um, they could have arrested us at any time away from the house if they wanted to avoid, you know, any kind of confrontation. But that wasn't their aim. That was not their aim. They came to kill. So 
they set up their weaponry of war on uh, Mother's Day. And initially, we were not sure that they were actually going to, you know, try to raid us, come in on us. Because on August 8th of 1984, they did the same thing. Came out there in mass to Osage Avenue, and they stayed a good portion of the day. But then, toward the evening, they packed up and left. So we weren't sure at first. But as the day went on, and they did not leave, we kind of got the idea that, you know, they must be ready to come in. So, so uh, we we initially went to the basement of our home. That was, you know, the strategy of our family. And um, people should know that the fire department, firefighters who are sworn to save lives, protect lives, people who run into burning buildings to save people, put their lives in jeopardy to save people. They were used as the first mode of attack against us. And they had four of their water hoses, their deluge hoses, that they used on us. And according to them, those deluge hoses pump out 10,000 pounds of water pressure per minute. So you're talking about four hoses, which means 40,000 pounds of water pressure per minute just raining down on us in the basement. That's how much pressure and water power was in that house that it was pouring down on us. Um, when that did not force us out of our home, they said that they wanted to fill the house with tear gas. And in order to do that, they said they wanted to blow three-inch holes in the party walls, the walls on each side of our home. By the time they finished using explosives to allegedly blow three-inch holes in the walls on either side of our home. They had blown off the whole front of our home. The whole front porch was blown away. And um, they pumped all this tear gas in our home. And when that did not serve to flush us out, then they opened fire. They used over 10 thousand rounds of bullets in less than 90 minutes on us. They used so much artillery that they had to send back to their arsenal for more bullets. Understand, they used, uh, they had 38 caliber guns, their sidearms. They had 9 millimeter Uzis. They had M16 rifles. They had sniper rifles with silencers. Now, silencers are the weapon of an assassin. What did they need silencers for? You know, um, yes. they had shotguns. They had um, uh, 50 caliber machine guns. 
and 60 automatic rifles. They had 20 millimeter armor piercing anti-tank guns and the makings of a bomb. C4, something that no municipal police department has. They got 37 and a half pounds of C4 from the federal government, from the FBI, you know. So they shot all those bullets in on us within 90 minutes, and when that did not force us out of our home, then they decided that they were going to drop a bomb. They never gave us any notice. They never gave us any kind of warning or said what they were going to do. They just, they didn't have to send for the C4. They brought that out there with them from Jump Street from the very beginning. And uh, all they did was concocted two bombs because they wanted a backup bomb. And they sent for the state police helicopter and went up, flew over our home, and dropped that bomb on the roof of our home. It immediately ignited a fire, a fire that uh, the police, the fire commissioner stated that they could have. Oh, Sister, Sister Ramona, we're going to go to a brief break. We'll be right back. We're going to let you finish your thoughts. We'll be right back right, right after this. Stay with us, ladies and gentlemen. Talk Radio Network for live programming schedules. Visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Welcome back to Let's Build. We have with us uh, Sister Ramona Africa to discuss uh, this week's uh, 30th anniversary of the observance of the horrific bombing of the MOVE organization headquarters by the Philadelphia Police. Uh, Sister Ramona, sorry, you were making a comment, you were making a point before we had went to commercial break. Please finish. Okay, what I was saying is that uh, they dropped a bomb on the roof of our home that ignited a fire immediately. Um, and they were aware that a fire had ignited on our roof. The fire commissioner admits that they could have extinguished that fire uh, at that point it's what they call an incipient fire and they could have easily put it out but made a decision conscious decision not to to let the fire burn now when have you ever heard of the fire department letting a structure burn knowing that there are men women babies animals in that structure I have never heard of that. No. And the thing is, the fire commissioner tried to cover his behind by saying he didn't want to put his firefighters in harm's way. But 
earlier, earlier when they first began their assault on us, the fire department used those same water hoses, deluge hoses, for hours on us. Now, what are they saying? Are they saying that move is so crazy that we would not attack or try to shoot at firefighters who are aiming those four deluge hoses at us when there was no fire, but the instant there was a fire, if they had tried to put the fire out, we were going to shoot them? What kind of sense does that make? You know? Um, it's, yes, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous and designed to try to divert people from the fact that their aim was to kill. And it was not made clearer than when we realized our home was on fire and we immediately tried to get ourselves, uh, our children, our animals out of that blazing inferno and was uh, immediately met by a barrage of police gunfire deliberately aimed at us to try to prevent anybody from escaping that fire. The instant they saw us, they opened fire on us. We were hollering that we were coming out. We were bringing the children out. The children were hollering that they were coming out. We were bringing them out, but to no avail. Their aim, their intent was to kill. They did not intend for anybody to survive that massacre, that attack on MOVE. And for what? One of the first questions we tell people that they should ask is, well, what was MOVE accused of, you know? What were they accused of? Were we accused of rape, robbery, murder, trafficking, drugs, molesting children? No, none of that. So why would they attack us the way they did if their intent was not murder? Because they had no justification for it. I mean, if everything that they tell people about MOVE and to try to justify what they did, their murderous intentions, has anything they said even came close to justification? For what they did? No. No. Take it all and put it all together. It still does not add up to justification for what they did. And the uh, crux of the matter is that not one single official has ever, till this day, 30 years later, been held accountable for murdering our family, burning our babies alive, as well as our adult sisters and brothers and our animals. You know, not one. The only person to go to jail as a result of the events of uh, Mother's Day, May 12th, and, and the next day that Monday, May 13th, nobody else was ever charged with anything or did a in prison but me 
Sputnik. And this is why we will never, ever let the events of that day be forgotten. You know, a lot of young people are not aware. A lot of older people, you know, don't want to deal with it. They might have heard something about it, but they don't really want to know either. But I'm sorry. That's too bad. We ain't never going to let it fade from people's, you know, memories. And we're always going to inform those that don't know. We're never going to let that situation die. And one of the main reasons we won't let it die is because the true reasoning or the true basis, I should say, behind their attack on us May 13th was not any complaints from neighbors. It's our unrelenting fight for the release of our innocent sisters and brothers who have been political prisoners for 37 years this year, since August 8th of 1978, for a crime that these officials know that our family did not commit. And we're never going to shut up or go away or stop fighting for our family, and we're not going to let people uh, be misled about what really was the aim of their attack or move. They were trying to shut us up, you know, and forget about our family members, our political prisoners, and we will never let that happen. So this year, two days from now, May 13th of 2015, we will be having all-day activities uh, in commemoration of the events of May 13th of 1985 and to continue to inform people about the ongoing unjust imprisonment of our innocent sisters and brothers known as the Mulu Nine. We will start the day with a rally at 62nd and Osage, the scene of the bombing, and several Osage residents are participating in that rally. You know, they will be speaking. There are uh, several Osage residents are also part of our program in the evening from 4 to 9. They will be speaking there. Um, so there will be this 11 a.m. rally at 62nd and Osage, and then there will be a 12 o'clock uh, press conference there at 62nd and Osage, and then people are going to march, run, skate, uh, bike, and car caravan down to 37th and Market, uh, 37th and Chestnut Street, uh, a church, a university, Lutheran Church, uh, gave us space for food vendors so that when people make that journey from 62nd and Osage down to 37th and Chestnut, they will be ready for some refreshments, for some food and a cool drink. Um, so we've arranged for food vendors to be there from 2 to about 4 or 5 o'clock. And then people will be making their way over to 
what's called um, uh, 3801 Market Street, First District Plaza, and that's where we will have the next part of our program, the speakers and performers. And uh, we have Alice Walker and Angela Davis. They sent filmed messages because they could not be there, so they had themselves film saying what they wanted to say, you know, about the bombing of MOVE. We have uh, Cornell West. Uh, in person. Everybody else is in person. Um, we have Brad, uh, not Brad, Glenn Ford uh, from Black, the Black Agenda Report. He is awesome. We have uh, Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. He will be there in person. Ward Churchill, uh, he was originally in Colorado teaching at the University of Colorado in Boulder. He is now in Atlanta because he spoke out about 9-1-1-9-11 and questioned who was really behind it and what was really going on and came under fire and ended up, you know, getting uh, dismissed. So it's going to be a great program, great program. Listen, well, well Sister uh, Ramona, you know, I'm scheduled to be there. Uh, I'll be covering it uh, this Wednesday, but I'm actually looking forward to seeing you as always, as well as the rest of the of the family. Okay, one of your homegrown, Amina Baraka, is on our program too. Yes, I saw that. I actually saw that. Such a, a terrific flyer, and uh, of course, uh, uh, like I said, we you know we're looking very forward to seeing you all. And uh, when I say I'll be covering it, I'm not going to be broadcasting. Uh, you know, many people don't realize. Well, some people don't know. I'm also a reporter. I'm a writer, reporter okay. for yourblackworld.com, but also uh, I'm a contributing writer for news1.com. So I'll be there covering the event for the two outlets, but uh, I wish I could. If that was a night that I broadcasted, I wouldn't mind broadcasting from there, but I'm sure it'll be very, it'll be very, uh, I don't want to call it a spectacular event because unfortunately we're observing a, 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 a tragedy, an unjust tragedy that took place. But uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure that the healing, we hope that healing takes place, but we hope it also brings attention to what happens when people in powerful positions uh, misuse their power for good. Yes. Uh, it is, in fact, being uh, live broadcast on a local Philadelphia radio station, WURD, and it's also being live streamed live stream. Oh. Uh, our tech people are live streaming it. Now, what, what site will it be live streaming from? Remember the struggle.com. Uh, I'm not a tech person, but um, uh, yeah, I don't think it's Facebook. I think it's remember the struggle or picture the struggle. I'm sorry. That's it. Picture the struggle. Dot com, and you can put in like May 13th or move bombing, and you will get to it. Well, we certainly listen. Uh, if there's anything else, uh, Revolver, that you have to say? Uh, uh, is there a message that you'd like to give to our listeners concerning well, your in the in the last remaining seconds we have? Okay, I would just like to give people some contact information. Uh, you can contact MOVE at 215-386-1165 or 
or you can uh, email us at N-A-M-O-V-E, that's on a move, L-L-J-A at gmail.com, or go to our website, onamove.com. Yes, and someone just sent us something. You're right. Picture the struggle. You're right. The, uh, someone just sent me a link to the Facebook okay. page. Definitely. Okay. Picture the uh, Facebook.com slash picture the struggle. Well, okay. <laughs> all right. Listen, we thank you for joining us, uh, Sister Ramona Africa, and we thank you, uh, Scotty Reed, also. Uh, please tune in next week. I'm Dashaun Farab. Thank you for building with us. Have a next one night. <laughs>